Kate Wheeler, and you are listening to the best of what she said on 105.9 The Region. As always, brought to you by Meridian Credit Union. Expecting more for your money, that's wealth esteem. Happy Labor Day long weekend. Today, we're featuring some of our favorite interviews from the past few months. First up, does Ontario have a problem with human trafficking? And how are these crimes happening in plain sight? We'll hear from Ronelle Bruder. She's a human trafficking survivor, youth advocate, speaker, researcher, and founder of the RISE Initiative, which, uh, as you know, Kate, is a grassroots initiative. Yeah, it supports vulnerable youth, many of whom are also survivors. So she shares her story and advice on what parents and the community can do to help keep our young women and girls safe. And after that, we're going to talk to Canadian cellist and writer Erica Nielsen, who tells us about her new memoir. It's called Sound Mind, My Bipolar Journey from Chaos to Composure. Now, the book takes us through her diagnosis of bipolar disorder at age 27 and reminds us it's not only possible to function with a mental illness, it's possible to thrive. Film critic Ann Brody sits down with Mina Masood, who plays Aladdin in the all-new live-action remake. He grew up in Markham. Pretty cool, mm-hmm. I think, don't you? I and, do. And personal finance expert Barry Choi has tips to get your finances back on track. It's amazing how they get off track. It is. And we, we also get off track apologizing, particularly, I think, in Canada. So is, is the need to over-apologize more of a female thing? Well, regardless of who does it more... Why are we doing it? Stick around to learn what to say instead of I'm sorry with Hey Ladies, Stop Apologizing author Professor Maya and for our live studio sessions with singer-songwriter Dia, who is going to perform Desire. And as always, don't forget to follow us on social media at What She Said Talk and download our free show podcast. You can find all the links on whatshesaidtalk.com. And we'll be back with a brand new episode next Saturday at noon right here on 105.9 The Region. Enjoy the best of. Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler will be right back. To contact the show, go to whatshesaidtalk.com. I just spoke to a Meridian advisor about variable versus fixed rate mortgages, and they told me that... Variable rates change based on Meridian's prime rate. Exactly. And that... You could pay your mortgage down faster if Meridian's prime rate goes down. How did you know? I spoke with an advisor, too. So let's get... A a Meridian five-year variable rate mortgage at 2.90%. Totally. Totally. Apply today at meridianmortgages.ca or visit a Meridian branch. Rates subject to change without notice. Some restrictions apply. 2.90% APR assumes the typical example of a new mortgage. Now back to what she said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. The arrest of R&B singer R. Kelly on charges of sexually abusing girls as young as 13 years old has focused the lens on the Me Too movement and the abuse of underage girls. Joining us today is Ronelle Bruder. She's a human trafficking survivor, youth advocate, speaker, researcher, and founder of the RISE Initiative, a grassroots initiative supporting vulnerable youth, many of whom are also survivors. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ronelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you were just a teenager when you were thrust into the sex industry under the influence of pimps. And you say that the initial allure of easy money and a glamorous lifestyle appealed to your teenage, 
very immature and very insecure self. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was a very vulnerable youth. I was homeless. I was in and out of youth shelters. And so because of that, that made me that much more vulnerable to traffickers. And I actually met a young woman at that time who herself, I would find out later on, was under the influence of traffickers. And she was the one that introduced me to them. And even when I first met my trafficker, it was under the impression of a boyfriend. So someone who was going to be my boyfriend, someone who wanted to support me and really just help me turn my life around. And so when he suggested dancing, you know, working in strip clubs and dancing as a way to make money to have this kind of ideal life that I was hoping for at that time, to me, it just seemed, OK, no big deal. Um, and it really was once I started dancing, I was working in the industry that I realized this is not what I wanted to do. But now you're under the control of somebody and you can't just walk away and leave. And more and more, I became just exposed to violence, sexual violence, physical violence, and really was starting to feel for my life. And that was what really propelled me to leave and to escape. Why do you say that R. Kelly's alleged predatory behavior is that of a human trafficker who systematically targeted, groomed, and exploited countless women and children, as opposed to just an immoral person. Yes. And really, so I watched the surviving R. Kelly docuseries and listening to the young women talk about their encounters with R. Kelly, it was very much in line with sort of the methodology of what human traffickers use. So the luring, the grooming, the coercion and the exploitation. So kind of all those different stages that we know human traffickers use, R. Kelly was using. And the only difference was that that final stage of the exploitation, there was no financial gain for R. Kelly. But he was still having them and exploiting them under some sort of, I think it's been called a sex cult. And there is reports that these women were told who to sleep with and they were forced to sleep with other women and other men. So it is still in line with human trafficking. It's just not the point of he wasn't making money. He wasn't profiting off these women, but he was controlling them and he was exploiting them. People who look from the inside, from the outside in, yeah. uh, can be judgmental. Mm-hmm. And maybe the key that they don't realize that you have emphasized mm-hmm. is that you come in being innocent. You have no intention of of being a working in the sex yeah. industry. You are groomed for it. So they use your insecurity. And they use your maybe your immatureness or the fact that you've not had things and you want some basic things like some nice clothes or, you know, to eat a nice meal or to have your hair done or stupid things. Yeah. So that's Um, what um, we call that sort of the honeymoon stage. So predators will look for vulnerable youth, like you had said, and then they'll kind of wind them, dine them. Right. So it's buying them nice gifts, clothes, taking them out, treating you like a princess. And that's kind of get you in and get you to fall in love. And once they have you where they want you, then that's where the manipulation and the control starts to come in. And it's you have to do this for me if you want this or I need you to help me. So can you you know, I need some money. Can you help me? And for a lot of young women, they actually feel obligated to this person. Sometimes this person is the only person that they feel cares about them. Yeah. Yeah. And so you don't realize that you've been manipulated and you're thinking that you're in love. You've been prepped. Yeah. You've been prepped. Yeah. So we always think that this doesn't happen in yes. our in our community, but uh, there are local stories of human trafficking and and showing us the pervasiveness of this crime. Does Ontario have a problem? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I support the Toronto Human Trafficking Department um, here with the police, and they will tell you that it, they're actually seeing an upward trend of cases of human trafficking here in the city. It is, it's a crime that's happening in plain sight. So it's happening all around us, but we're not talking about it. And because we're not talking about it, it's allowing predators and traffickers to sort of attack and use and, you know, and go for our children. Why do you think it's rising? I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think access to children is a lot easier when you think of something like social media. Do you know what I mean? Like traffickers are going on Instagram. They're on Snapchat. They're on all those sort of platforms of social media. And they're able to target young people, befriend them, and exploit their vulnerability. So I think there's just a lot of more access to young people. And a lot of people, we're not talking about this as well. Just as a society, we're not having conversations about human trafficking. No, you're right. We aren't. And I remember when I was, you know, many, many years ago when I was uh, a young mother, they, uh, the place to worry about was the bus, uh, the bus yeah. terminal near the Eaton Center. And I remember my, uh, my daughter wanted to go down there with her friends, yeah. and I said, "You're 15. You're all blonde. You're all cute. Not no way in no. hell are you going. And if you're going down to the Eaton Center, I'm coming with you. Yeah. Um, but but it's it's not any particular spot. It's everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, it's still malls. It's still it's places where young people hang out. So there's going to be malls. There's places where you can find youth you know, homeless shelters, group homes and things like that. But then the social media, I mean, there was one case most recently of a young woman who was targeted and recruited off of Tinder, which is a dating app. So, I mean, this is how pervasive this crime is and everyone is vulnerable. So it's not just a certain type of girl. It's young women from all backgrounds, all social economical backgrounds, the suburbs, urban centers. So So, uh, what can parents in the community do to keep Mm. young women and girls safe. I don't have much contact with young women or girls, I mean, in my day-to-day life, but but I would love to, to help. Yeah, I think as parents, um, and I'm a mother myself yeah. too, so it's having these conversations. It's being comfortable talking about sex, talking about human trafficking with your children. It's having conversations about what a healthy relationship looks like. Because I know when I was younger, to me, just someone saying that they loved me meant it was a healthy relationship. Like, I just didn't know. Do you know what I mean? So making sure that our young girls and our young boys know what a healthy relationship looks like and what are red flags. Like, what should they be alert for? What should they be looking out for? And what should they be looking out for? So, I mean, if you meet somebody and right away they're, you know, I love you. I want to do this for you. It's almost, you know, that saying, if it's too good to be true. It probably is that kind of thing. If they're trying to isolate you from your friends and your family, so it's just you and them and nobody else kind of behavior. You you and them against the world. world, Like that type of behavior. If they're all of a sudden showering you with things. Do you know what I mean? Like I tell a lot of parents, if all of a sudden you notice your young daughter comes home with expensive jewelry and a Louis Vuitton bag, I mean, you know a 16-year-old can't afford that on their own. You have to start to wonder what's going on and who's in their life. One of the complications, I think, for parents is that, especially with young girls, there's that sort of hormonal stage where they don't like you, they don't want to be around you, and you have trouble just communicating about coming down for dinner, never mind (laughs) anything else. Uh, But that's always been the case. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's still the case. But I think just trying to, you know, and not starting when you know, they're 16 and 17. It's one of those things where we have to start having these conversations when our children are 8, 9, 10. I mean, age-appropriate conversations. Yes. But opening up the dialogue to talk about these kinds of things. Not everybody is nice. Yes. Way before they enter high school because, they're. I mean, they're targeting children young as 12. 
and 13. So we need to have these conversations early on. So, Ronelle, you're a member of both the Toronto Counter-Human Trafficking Network and Anti-Trafficking Advisory Table. You've written extensively about human trafficking and the effects of sexual exploitation on victims. Where can people connect with you online? Yeah, so you can go to my website, so www.ronellebruder.com, and you can follow me on social media, and my handle is Bruder. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us yeah. today because, you know, it takes a lot of courage to come out and, and yeah. talk about all the things that you've gone through, people have gone through. Uh, everybody has a story. Yeah. <laughs> and in your case, you're sharing that story mm-hmm. hopefully will help a lot of parents um, and maybe older sisters or whomever, somebody in a family, siblings, aunts and uncles, help, you know, keep a watch out for vulnerable young people. Yeah, really my hope is just to help create awareness and education so we can keep I our children boys safe. Are, I guess boys are vulnerable too. Boys are vulnerable too, yes. Yeah. So Not just girls. Everybody, all Every, our children. All yes. our children. Thank <laughs> yes. you so much. Yes, thank you. What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler will be right back. you about my friend Alfred. Alfred has truly revolutionized dry cleaning in the GTA. You see, we're all busy. Some may even say too busy. And Alfred's laundry list of services are here to help. They include wash and fold, dry cleaning, alterations, as well as shoe cleaning and repairs. Alfred takes care of it all. Simply drop your garments off with your concierge or at any Penguin pickup location in the GTA, and Alfred will take care of the rest. Learn more today at alfredservice.com or through the free Alfred Service app. Sign up today and get a first-time discount by entering the promo code WHATSHESAID. Looking for a better brunch? We found it for you at Draco Restaurant, inside the spectacular brand-new Toronto Marriott Markham on Enterprise Boulevard. All your delicious brunch favourites, plus signature cocktails, every Sunday from 10 till 2. Take our word for it, you'll love the space and you'll love the food. It's easy to reserve now on opentable.ca or call 905-489-1400. Elevate your brunch, Sundays at Draco. Now back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. Joining us now is Erica Nielsen, who is a Canadian cellist and writer based in Toronto, and she just released a memoir called Sound Mind, My Bipolar Journey from Chaos to Composure. (laughs) Welcome to What She Said, Erica. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Now, this book takes us through your diagnosis of bipolar disorder and how you walked yourself to a place of stability and health. You were diagnosed at age 27. Uh, about six and a half years ago. So tell us about that experience because I'm aware of many people who never walk themselves to a place, are able to walk themselves to a place of health. Well, when um, during my teen years, um, I experienced um, tumultuous teen depressions. And I was, of course, told that that's a part of growing up. Mm -hmm. There's normal ups and downs. Teenage angst. Yes, something to be expected. You're being a drama queen, la da da. And um, um, and it followed me through my early 20s. And I and I had this sneaking suspicion there was something more going on. And at that point, I um, 
thought it would be a good idea to pursue psychotherapy um, just to um, uh, set out on a path of healthy adulthood. It just felt like a good thing to do. Before we go any further, can you just explain like what your symptoms were or how you felt? Because I mean, sure, I think all of us get depressed sometimes. So mm-hmm. what was it that made you think that there was something more than just the normal ups and downs of life? I, you know, my my sense of self worth and self esteem was so unbelievably low, um, and I hid it really well. It was all behind closed doors. Um, I experienced repeated suicidal thoughts, nightmares, thoughts of death. Very, very, very troubling, and it actually yielded in a couple of um, attempts. Um, but what I didn't. Um, uh, no, so that okay. So then, flash forward ten years, psychotherapy. Um, what I did not understand and account for was the highs I experienced, and um, my sleep was erratic. And I was um, now. I thought this was just part of my personality. I'm a colorful, colorful person. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. And this is just part of who I was. Um, um, but I, what I understand now is what I was experiencing were symptoms of mania, which we don't understand quite as as well. So on. Um, um, just shortly after my wedding, I'm 27. I'm high on all the new possibilities of this this n- next chapter in my life. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get to the bottom of that teen depression. I'm going to get myself checked out. I'm going to get um, uh, a diagnosis uh, by, by a professional. I'm going to talk to my doctor and get a psychiatric assessment. And what I was experiencing in that drive was actually a manic episode. And it was my mania which led me to um, a my diagnosis of bipolar disorder. It's kind my, of ironic, really, isn't, my, isn't it? <laughs> my illness had me discover my illness. Yeah. That, 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 One that, of those, I'm just going to get this sorted exactly. now and then move yeah. on. Check off the box. Yeah, check off the yeah. box. Yeah, yeah. let's just take care of this. And uh, it was bigger than I could have ever imagined. How long did it take them to diagnose this? Um, well, um, I was uh, I, I went in for about a 45-minute long assessment, mm-hmm. and um, they spent two hours with me. And I thought, well, they're just being thorough. They have to account for how special I am. <laughs> and um, uh, when I went for, then of course I went for my follow-up, and they suspected. Um, but they were about 95% certain that what I, what I had was bipolar disorder type 1. So how did how did you how did that get cured or how did that get managed? Well, um, uh, the psychiatrists I met with were actually really they 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 put the power in my own hands. They said, "This is what we think might be a match for you, but we want you to go do your own research and give this some careful thought and decide for yourself if you think this is a fit for you." They didn't they didn't label me. They didn't tell me this is what you are. Um, they put it in my hands, and I and I did that research and. Um, uh, in some of my research, not just learning about the condition, but I stumbled across um, uh, books and memoirs written by others who had the disorder. And I was so comforted in reading those books. Um, And um, that's partly what inspired me to share my own story, because I knew how much I benefited from reading those those personal accounts. How I'm wondering how this um, affected your music, your playing, because you've you know you're a graduate of the Glenn Gould School and Queens, and you've performed with Kanye West, Johnny Reed, uh, you know, all kinds of things. Plus, you teach. You're passionate about your, your teaching. Yeah. So before, yes. when you didn't know. 
How was your music playing and and what changed? Oh, this is uh, such a great question. When I was living with undiagnosed bipolar disorder, um, you know, um, I, of course, experienced, um, uh, you know, very deep depressions. Mm-hmm. And that's all I thought was going on. But I was, you know, flighty, less organized. Um, my sleep was erratic. I would um, jump from idea to idea. And I, again, I just thought that was a part of who I was. But something else, I uh, experienced very severe um, performance anxiety. And I would sometimes black out when I was performing. And I just thought that I, there was something wrong with me or that this was part of being a musician. And um, when I treated my condition, when I treated my bipolar disorder, my performance anxiety is, is, is down to only about 10%. It's, it improved significantly. And I'm more productive, more creative, more effective than I ever thought possible. My thoughts are organized. It was like somebody turned down the volume button on my mind. And um, I can just, I can float from task to task. I'm no longer sort of running from from project to project. So how did you treat it? Well, um, upon um, uh, my follow-up appointment with my psychiatrist, and, and we talked about, we believe you have bipolar disorder, they were very, very gentle in suggesting really the first step of treatment in a condition of this severity is medication. And um, you know, there's stigma out there against mental illness. There's also a huge stigma towards taking medication. I think a lot of us, our initial reaction to taking a medication is no, it's unnatural. It means that I'm broken. And I carried that with me. Um, um, I didn't even want to take medication in my teens. And I thought that a psychiatric medication would flatten me. And so um, I think my exact words to the psychiatrist were, can't I just take more bubble baths and sniff? lavender. And of course, this was not. And so it took a major depressive episode, actually, that followed my diagnosis. Um, um, I, I lost a family member. Um, I had a toddler half-brother. I lost a family member to cancer. And I was following into a very deep depression. And at that point, I, I realized, okay, if I'm going to save myself, I need to begin a regime of medication. And um, my medication is fabulous. It, <laughs> it, now, it took... It took years to find the right, what we call yeah. cocktail. Okay, right. So it takes a lot of perseverance, but it's good. So you decided to share uh, your experience. What do you hope people take away from your book? Well, I, I don't only um, talk about um, treating a condition with medication, um, but in the second half of Sound Mind, um, my book, so the first half tells my story, the second half outlines the steps I took that were effective for me um, towards uh, living a life of better mental health and better stability. And that means tackling my sleep schedule. I am the sleep queen. It's all about the sleep. Tackled my nutrition, exercise. Um, um, I talk about finding the right psychotherapist, embracing um, groups and peer support. That was really big for me, too. Um, I belong to a bipolar disorder meetup group, which um, is a is a wonderful support group. Um, that was really huge. Um, so I want readers to find hope inspiration. I want them to um, uh, feel like they can take actionable steps towards treating any mental health condition that they're experiencing. It's not just for people with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, People experiencing any mental health 
um, condition um, can benefit from um, sound mind. Uh, so did you find the, the coming out about it uh, freeing? Yes, I was terrified at first, as you can imagine, because, you know, it's admitting a disability. It's a, yeah. it's admitting what I thought was a flaw. And it's um, uh, it's it's more freeing than I ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. I can just be myself and really coming out is the word oh, for it. Awesome. Well, I hope anybody listening um, takes that away. Absolutely. Now, Sound Mind, My Bipolar Journey from Chaos to Composure. It's out now. Where can people get a copy? You can pick up a copy at your um, actually some local independent bookstores are it. Um, also Indigo and Amazon.ca. And how can people connect with you online? They can connect with me at Cello Erica with a K on Instagram and Twitter or at Cello Erica with a K.com. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler will be right back. Still being picked on for being picky? Perfect. Meridian's good-to-grow high-interest savings account was made for you. At Meridian, we say be picky. Order that half-calf, half-sweet, no-foam latte with whip. Try on your whole closet until your outfit is outstanding. And accept nothing less than 3% interest for four months when you open your first good-to-grow high-interest savings account. Meridian. Expecting more for your money. That's wealth esteem. Terms and conditions apply. What she said. She's powerful, wonderful, honest and lovable. Now back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. If you haven't had the chance to see Disney's live-action Aladdin remake yet, our film critic Ann Brody sat down with Mina Masood, who stars as the leading man, and he grew up in Markham. Take a listen. What are you doing? Sometimes, princess. Sometimes, you just have to take a risk. Mina, I was so delighted to hear that you won the part. Someone from Markham. <laughs> thank you. Wow. Thank you. Yes. That was incredible. So we've been waiting for a long time for this. That's what she said. There you go. That, the right? God love you. <laughs> <laughs> I love That's it. our promo. There you go. There you go. Um, this role is dates back to folk legend, I would yeah. assume, like a thousand years ago or something. Yeah. And there have been so many iterations from film, musicals, uh, TV and video games, everything, even mm. manga. Yes. So what's it like to step into this incredible history of this beloved character and story? Um, you know, it means a lot to me. I, I obviously grew up with the animation. but Well, you're a bit young to have seen it in the theater, right? I am indeed. I think the first time I saw it was probably back in Egypt. My sisters had it playing on at the house all the time. But my parents knew of the story before uh, Disney ever made, you know, Aladdin. Oh, cool. Because obviously... They're Egyptian, and they grew up uh, with the folk tale of the genie and the lamp. Um, so it means a lot to me to get to play him now, and uh, he was one of the only characters that I could relate to growing up that looked like me, had a similar culture to me. So, uh, you know, I'm honored. That's, what a great feeling. And yeah. now you're doing it, so... Yes, I hope we've done it justice for the younger generation and, uh, you know, for, for the older generation. I, this movie really speaks to, to everyone. Well, you've, you've made the filmmakers proud. You did such a great job. Thank you very much. You know, he's very charming. He can be kind of dazzling. Um, he's, a, he's a 
a whole created character. He's he's complete. Thank you so very what much. did you bring to him that maybe only you knew about? You know, I tried to pull uh, as much from me as possible. When I was in high school and elementary school growing up, I, I was certainly the minority. Um, you know, I looked different. I spoke a different language at home, ate different food. Um, and Aladdin's like that in a lot of ways. He's loved in his community, but he's also an outcast. He keeps to himself. Um, he lost his parents very young. Um, so I just wanted to bring as much of that to him, you know, as possible. Now, I'm sure you're naturally athletic, but yeah. how on earth did you prepare for that? Some of those jumps were just like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we had a great stunt team. Uh, Hazit Savani did an incredible job with me as well. And um, we had six weeks of prep where we just oh. kind of prepped for the film before we even started shooting. So uh, I'd wake up every morning, I'd work out with my trainer, weight training, and then I'd work out with the stunt team. We started just implementing uh, somersaults and uh, cartwheels and uh, flips and slides and we kind of just built built and from, from there. heights yes uh, <laughs> you know I uh, that one big jump they wouldn't let me do because of insurance purposes all right but uh, I had some flips that I got to do and 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 you know the underwater scenes it was it was a great experience yeah and you know what a great cast and Jasmine is such a heroine yes. to so many girls, and yes. I guess you were aware of that. So you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, I have two older sisters. So, yes. Um, You're so, well versed. Uh, yeah, I understood that, and we've really done, we've really focused on uh, fleshing out her character. You know, she has a new best friend now that Nassim Pedrad plays, so we tried to even the playing field a little bit. It's not just Aladdin that has all these amazing friends. Jasmine now has a best friend that she can confide in, and. Um, you know, I, I think it has some great new aspects. Now, ha have you had any evidence of this changing your career to date? Um, you know, I, I can't say I have. I've certainly, you know, people are paying a little bit more attention, but I'm still having to go in and, uh, you know, fight for the roles and uh, things like that. So, so we'll see. We'll see. But it's part of being an actor. You know, you have to go in and kind of win, win the roles. Win the roles, yes. Yeah. Well, you're Canadian, you'll be fine. We <laughs> do well you. down there. Thanks. Yeah, we do. We do. Congratulations on this minute. It's Th wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is this a magic carpet? Do you trust me? What did you say? Do you trust me? Connect with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler at WhatSheSaidTalk.com. Well, we all struggle with our finances at times, but there's no reason to stress about it. Personal finance expert Barry Choi joins us to share some simple tips to get your finances back on track. And, and Barry, I just know you're going to start with make a budget, but lots of people <laughs> think that six-letter word is actually a four-letter word. Yeah, you know, budgets are a bit tricky because I don't think a lot of people realize where to begin, right? Like the easiest way and also arguably the most complicated thing is you really got to track your expenses. And I'm talking about like literally writing everything down for a month or two so you can really start to get a picture of where your money's going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I got into this whole game, it's like at the beginning, it's like, you're, you're, 
as long as you're getting paid and paying your bills, people think that's all right. But no, no, no. You really got to know where your money is spending. It's like, how much are you spending on lunch? How much are you spending on your expenses? And more importantly, how much are you putting towards your savings? Those are very important things. Mm -hmm. And once you've kind of seen where it's going after one or two months, you can start making those adjustments. So maybe you realize, hey, I'm spending too much on eating out. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'm spending too much on recreational activities or even personal entertainment. Then you make those adjustments because people usually what they do is they spend first and save last. I mean, it should be the other way around. Absolutely. I mean, you want to live, living within your means was something that I know, my parents always said, you know, don't live beyond your means. Yeah, like if, that's exactly what I was raised with. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things my mom taught me at, the, at a very young age was, well, maybe not young. When I got my first job was like, hey, if you can spend half your salary or live on one salary when you're married or you got a partner, then you're usually doing pretty good. Because if someone gets laid off, then it's not as big of a deal because you budgeted everything to be on that one income. Uh, but it's crazy these days. You know, when my parents were, you know, first in to Canada, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have the internet, they mm-hmm. weren't thinking about vacations or iPads. So there's all these ex- new expenses that are almost become daily needs for people these days. But and then, do you really need them? Or? Okay, hang on a second. You just said something, and there's something I've tried to drill into my kids. You said needs. I try to teach them there's a difference between want and need, a big difference. Yeah, there's, there's needs are, are like, you know, a lot of people were fortunate to have a lot of things, you, you know, electronics, or even my wife and I, we really enjoy vacations. But we recognize that's a luxury, so we spend a little bit more because we enjoy that. But at the same time, if money was ever tight, that'd be one of the first things to go. We understand that. It's luxury. It's it's not necessarily a need. It's nice to have, but it's not a need. Right. Absolutely. But I think what what we're also dealing with, I think my parents gave me a fairly good fiscal education. I think probably Mm -hmm. yours did, too. But then you have a generation of YOLO. It's sort of, well, you only live once. Well, that's fine. If you're going to have a vacation because you're only living once, you can't have a vacation and shop Mm -hmm. at Holt Renfrew. And buy an expensive car. Right. And, you know, I mean, you can't do it all. You've got to prioritize what your little treat that's, is going to be. That's exactly it. So my parent, parents prioritize, you know, my brother and I's education. Exactly. And having right. living. And, you know, we didn't take vacations every single year. I'd say maybe every couple of years we took a road trip. And that, to me, was also fortunate. Um, but, you know, like you said, these days, you know, you look at Instagram. People are like, hey, look at me in, you know, Portugal, me in Spain. I want to do that. And you want to spend my – and credit cards are so easily accessible these Things that people just don't think about how easy it is to spend money, but at the same time, you know, you could be one major financial crisis away from bankruptcy. Exactly. So let, let's go through. I mean, when you're saying track all your spending for a month or two, see where your money's going, make mm-hmm. adjustments. So you put your fixed expenses like rent and Got things it. like that down first, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. And then you also add in don't forget to budget for once a year expenses like presents. Exactly. Or it, insurance. It, it, it's funny. We all know Christmas comes in December, but how many people like November's like, I don't have any money to pay for these presents. So again, we go back to credit cards. We put the money on the credit card and come January, all of a sudden it's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I got this giant bill. Uh, It's it's kind of sad because you know, we, we kind of live in a society these days where people don't want to disappoint with the presents. And, and sometimes presents get bigger and bigger every single year. Uh, but it's not, it's at the same time, it's okay to set expectations or just mm-hmm. tell people. I was like, you know, my parents could care less what I get them. My wife and I set a strict budget. It was like, how much do we want to spend on each other? Because we always say, hey, that money we're saving on presents can be used for better things that we enjoy, like the vacations we were talking about. Okay, so and you were talking about making small adjustments for big savings. So we've all heard about the latte effect, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. what is it? Like, something like you spend four 50 
on a coffee yeah, yeah, a day. It's, that's it's, it's like crazy. What? You know, back in the day, it was like a dollar coffee. But now, you know, talk about the fancy coffee shops. You could easily spend four, five, six dollars. Like, I don't drink coffee, but I love bubble tea. And six dollars <laughs> every single time I, I go. Yeah, right? yeah but that's like a, thou- a, a day. It's I mean, my math is like, not that fast, but that's thousands. That's over it's, a thousand. It's over a thousand dollars a year. Yeah. This is small adjustments. You're like, so people are saying, it's like, oh, I don't have money to save from retirement. Well, you cut some small things. Or even think about your meals. How, how many times you're like uh, eating out every single week mm-hmm. or, or dining out. Or even small things like, are you? do you really need that extra glass? of wine with your meal. Um, so again, $1,000 here and there. There's these small things you can do. Um, you know, especially if you're a student or you're on a fixed income, think about things like, I was reading the Kijiji Secondhand Index Report and it talked mm-hmm. about if you were buying and selling stuff online uh, or through the secondhand economy for an entire year, you could put $2,000 back in your pocket. That and would pay for your bubble tea. <laughs> <laughs> or it would pay, it would go well into an RSP. RSP. Exactly. Yeah. RSP Tax is a great thing. Savings. Paying down yep. debt, you know, saving for tuition. There's so many things you can do that money. Because basically, every dollar you can save can be put towards other things that are priority towards you. And it sounds crazy at the same time, you know, using the secondhand economy or things like, how much can you really save? But, you know, just last week, um, we sold a, an extra diaper bag that we had, or I got an Instagram or an Instapix camera that I just didn't need, sold it for $50. Like all of a sudden I had $100 I didn't have the two days before, right? And you put it right into your emergency fund or your well, savings? Well, fortunately, I'm, I've got an emergency fund saved up. And that's another thing that I quickly want to touch, touch okay. on. Like, you know, quite often people don't think about those emergencies, like legit emergencies, your car breaking down that requires a major fix, or a job loss. If you put aside a few months of expenses, then if th- something happens, you've got a bit of a buffer period. Because what happens is a lot of people who don't have that money set aside, that one major expense comes up, and then all of a sudden they're going to into their credit cards, their line of credit, mm-hmm. and they just don't have the funds to pay it back. And it's an endless spiral that can get out of control quickly. And you should keep that money accessible, I suppose, so that you can get at it right yeah, away. Yeah, you don't want it invested because what if the markets drop, right? And all of a sudden that money goes down in value. If you have it in a high interest savings account or, or in a bank, somewhere where you can just get access to it very quickly. All right. Um, Barry Choi, uh, thank you very much. Uh, people? Download this on the podcast. Play it for your t- teenagers. <laughs> um, and if you want to get in touch uh, with Barry, his website is moneywehave.com. Thank you very much. Anytime. What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler will be right back. I just spoke to a Meridian advisor about variable versus fixed rate mortgages, and they told me that... Variable rates change based on Meridian's prime rate. Exactly. And that... You could pay your mortgage down faster if Meridian's prime rate goes down. How did you know? I spoke with an advisor, too. So, let's get a... a Meridian five-year variable rate mortgage at 2.90%. Totally. Apply today at meridianmortgages.ca or visit a Meridian branch. Rates subject to change without notice. Some restrictions apply. 2.90% APR assumes the typical example of a new mortgage. Think fancy fold-away screens are out of reach? Well, things just got interesting with Vista One retractable screens. Three models, smart technology, and innovative components like pleated mesh for extra strength. Transform any opening by adding a Vista One retractable screen and increase your living space, enjoy fresh air, keep insects out, and do it all in style. With a unique affordable line of screens exclusive to Vista One, you're sure to find the perfect design match. Book a free consultation or go online to VistaOneInc.com, like I did. What she said, she's powerful, wonderful, honest and lovable. Now back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. 
So here's the question of the day. Is the need to over-apologize more of a female thing? And regardless of who does it more, why are we doing it? Our next guest says women do, in fact, have a tendency to apologize more and do it for different reasons Mm -hmm. than men. Professor Maya holds a Ph.D. in sociology from McMaster University, where she also teaches and is in studio with us now. Welcome to what she said. Thank you so much. Now, you're also the author of Hey Ladies, Stop (laughs) Apologizing and Other Career Mistakes Women Make. So tell us. Where did this obsession with apologies come from? Okay, so I was finishing my degree and I was attending an academic conference, a five-day conference. I was sitting in the audience, about 500 of us there, and there was a panel discussion. I was listening to fellow PhDs, women at the pinnacle of their career, women who had published hundreds of academic articles, dozens of books, and all they had to do was introduce themselves. Literally, that was it. And the first woman took the microphone and she said, I don't know what I could possibly add to such a distinguished panel. And immediately I thought, what, what, what is happening? You are the world expert. If you don't know what you're doing here, why am I listening to you? I thought, okay, you know, she's nervous. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Second woman takes the microphone and she says, oh, my gosh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I thought they sent the email to the wrong person. Third woman, fourth woman, same thing. Where there was a woman at that conference, an apologetic tone was sure to follow. Where there was a woman at that conference, there was a minimization of her accomplishments and a deflection of praise. And I found it enraging. Oh, my goodness. I found it enraging, but I also found it heartbreaking. But what I noticed at that conference for the first time was... It mirrored exactly what I was seeing in my undergraduate classrooms with my 18-year-olds and my 25-year-olds. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, it's all of us. These are women, tenured profs, world experts, and yet they were doubting. They were doubting themselves. And that's what I thought, oh, I have to do something. I have to write a book. And that's how my whole career changed because of that conference. Yeah, so I, I, I mistook that. I thought apologies, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Which I, is a very Canadian which thing. Which is a very mm-hmm. Canadian thing. But, you know, we've we've heard this a million times, you and I, Kate, mm. about men and women looking at a career posting, a job posting. Oh, yes. Men will go, oh, I can do two of those 12 things. I'm good. I've uh-huh. got this. Women uh-huh. will look at it and go, I can only do 11. I'm not applying. Yep. So it's that self-doubt Absolutely. Apologizing for not being, what, perfect or superwoman or... Yeah, it's that expectation that if we're not going to nail it the first time, then we're not going to try. If we don't fill every single criteria on that job posting, then it's not for us. It's also deep down inside a little bit of the imposter syndrome, this fear, Mm -hmm. this doubt that everywhere we go, everyone's an expert except for us. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of plants seeds of doubt. And then you start internalizing these issues. So when you make a mistake, oftentimes women think we are the mistake. We fail. We think we are the failure. And if you do that enough, you really start to internalize that. And it's, it's tied to how often we are apologizing. The first word a woman says in my classroom before asking a question is, oh, sorry, this is going to sound silly. Sorry, this may be stupid. And I've done it. Yep. Or in meetings. Sorry, could I just interrupt? Sorry, I just have an idea. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Could this could this stem from childhood where someone was made to feel 
wrong when they were young and, and or maybe fear of punishment because they think they got something wrong? Uh, absolutely. A lack of confidence can stem from a lot of different things. Early childhood experiences, overly critical parenting behaviors, uh, childhood trauma can impact that. But then you get into the classroom setting and it can be impacted by your teachers who are more likely to call on boys than they are girls. Which is why I sent my daughters to all girls schools. Mm-hmm. But I yes. didn't want them to, to feel that way. Yeah. But it's also about a lack of representation in every single thing we see on media, in books, in children's books, in movies, in commercials and brochures. It's like everywhere you go, you see a representation of a powerful man. And yet when we present as confident, when a woman presents as confident, she's read immediately as what? Cocky, conceited, aggressive, too much. Mm-hmm. And then there's also all that gender bias where we ourselves as women clock another woman as, ooh, that's too much. Who is she? Where is she going with all of that? Research shows women are tougher on other women. When you have two resumes that come your way, one's Howard, one's Heidi, they're identical. The women interviewer is more likely to hire, to hire Howard because Heidi seems a little too much. Right. And so we have to recognize that bias ourselves so that when another woman presents as confident, we start thinking, yes, how can I get some of that? How can I learn from her? So how do we get past this feminine modesty and and learn to acknowledge our own accomplishments? Easiest tip, say thank you. Say thank you. When you are complimented or praised on anything from the color of your hair to your outfit to a job well done at work, thank you. And then zip it. And then, oh, my goodness, resist the urge to then a self-deprecating joke, a little bit of humor. Oh, you look fabulous in that dress. Where'd you get it? Oh, this whole thing? Oh, I've had it for ages. Absolutely. Or even worse, this whole thing, I got it at Winners on Clearance. Yeah. Like, what? I've done that so many times. Nobody asked you where you bought it or how much you paid. Uh But you know what that is? That's planting a seed of doubt. So then somebody's looking at you going, well... You know what? It does kind of look wrinkled. It does look a little cheap. But thanks for bringing that to my attention because we've just led with the negative. That That is that that feminine modesty, that ingrained characteristic that we should always be so highly attuned to other people's feelings. Heaven forbid we own our light. We stand our ground and somebody else's feelings would get hurt. And I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my daughter or my undergrads or any woman listening. I don't want us to dim our light because somebody else's feelings may be hurt. So let me ask you this. We all love our children. Mm -hmm. So we don't want them to apologize for anything. What are we doing subconsciously without even knowing that we're programming them for this? Because it does it must start at home or it must be fed at home or reinforced at home. Absolutely. It's fed because from a very early age, our young girls are taught to be humble, just be nice, just get along, just share, just don't hurt anybody's feelings. And there's a really big difference between over-apologizing where it becomes insincere and we're just throwing away our confidence with every needless, useless apology versus apologizing when it really, truly matters, when you have inflicted harm, when you've hurt somebody. Apologize for that. But don't apologize for interrupting somebody, for wanting to have your opinion heard, for, you know, how many times have you apologized? Somebody comes to your house, oh, sorry, my house is a mess. Sorry, I didn't have a chance to clean up. Sorry, I'd like to, you know, those are those needless apologies that we can just easily switch for something more confidence-inducing. 
Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm I'm constantly apologizing for, you know, the house is too messy or whatever. But then my friends say, but we came to see you. We don't care about how the house looks. Yeah. But I wonder, how does it make you feel when already in your mind you're thinking, I, I have to apologize for this? Is there anything else that women do to undermine their confidence when it comes to communication? Is there something else we should be aware of other than apologizing? Uh, cataloging our mistakes instead of highlighting our progress. So often, women can rattle off the last 20 mistakes they made. Remember that one time in 2007 when I messed up in that presentation? No, but again, thanks for bringing that to our attention. But yet, you ask a woman, and I do this exercise in my workshops and classrooms, and I'll say, you've got two minutes. Write down 10 things that you are so proud of yourself for, Ten, your top 10 accomplishments. Nobody ever fills a page. Really? No, I find never. that fascinating. Never. Because I don't want to brag it's too much or I don't know if this is good enough to highlight. Okay, so the book is called Hey Ladies, Stop Apologizing. Mm -hmm. How do people connect with you and, and get a copy of the book? Thank you. So they can go on to ProfessorMaya.com. That's my website. All my Instagram handles and Twitter is at ProfessorMaya, and Maya is M-A-J-A. Mm -hmm. um, or they can um, go on to TED Talks and check out my TED Talk. It's called How Apologies Kill Our Confidence. And TED actually just highlighted um, the TED Talk. Oh, congratulations. New ideas. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Well done. Well, See, there you go. There you go. Let me just say, yes. I am waiting for you to design a course for public school. Yes. I would like to that start, also. To start right in, you know, grade two or three. Yes. And I'm doing talks in high schools, but absolutely that is something. To start them yep. young and start, start the teachers young. young. Yep. And the parents. Yes. Yes. We need it. We need it because we're up against so much. We're up against so much. And so we have to start owning our accomplishments and get off the apology train. All right. Professor Maya, thank you very much for coming thank in you. and telling us all about it today. Thank you so much. What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler will be right back. Still being picked on for being picky? Perfect. Meridian's good-to-grow high-interest savings account was made for you. At Meridian, we say be picky. Order that half-calf, half-sweet, no-foam latte with whip. <sighs> Try on your whole closet until your outfit is outstanding. <laughs> and accept nothing less than 3% interest for four months when you open your first good-to-grow high-interest savings account. Meridian, expecting more for your money. That's wealth esteem. Terms and conditions apply. Think fancy fold-away screens are out of reach? Well, things just got interesting with Vista One retractable screens. Three models, smart technology, and innovative components like pleated mesh for extra strength. Transform any opening by adding a Vista One retractable screen and increase your living space, enjoy fresh air, keep insects out, and do it all in style. With a unique affordable line of screens exclusive to Vista One, you're sure to find the perfect design match. Book a free consultation or go online to VistaOneInc.com, like I did. What she said, she's powerful, wonderful, honest and lovable. Now back to What She Said with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler. listening to is Desire by Toronto singer-songwriter Dia, who is in studio with us now. Welcome to What She Said. Thank you so much for having me. 
tell us how you got started in the industry. My musical journey started when I was pretty young. I was about 11 years old when I started performing with my grandfather's folk band, Italian music. And shortly after, I just started performing and writing my own material and just trying to get out there as much as possible and becoming comfortable in front of crowds. You know, And your parents were supportive? Yes, my parents are very supportive. They're actually both musicians as well. So, so no generation <laughs> skipped here? None <laughs> skipped, no. Nope. Now you describe your music as world pop. Yes. Why is that? What does that mean? So through my general interests in languages and cultures and anthropology and people in general, as well as my studies, I kind of just found a way to melt all of my love for culture and especially music culture mm-hmm. within pop format with hopes of really making world music accessible to the general public. I, I guess. see. Yeah. So you just released your debut pop album, Desire, which is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And how was the process of making that? It was a very long process. It was a very exciting process and also very daunting. Um, a lot of rewriting and writing and rewriting again because we really wanted to focus on making sure that the essence of the cultures would come through even in a stripped down setting. So without the nuances of having instruments kind of hinting at these different influences, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that something as simple as a guitar and voice would really still portray the feeling of the song. Okay, and you've got a music video for Desire as well. I do, That's yes. The, single, the, the first is. single? Yes. The first single of yeah. it. So, and and um, the video incorporates all those aspects for you of making it world pop? Um, the video is kind of a, an artistic collaboration with choreographers who do kind of world dance. Oh, um, and filmmakers who really wanted to take a stance in trying to... It's hard to explain, actually, because there, there are some very different creative aspects to the whole mm-hmm. whole video. Well, maybe it's easier <laughs> if, if people see it. So where can people find you online? People can find me online on Instagram at Dia 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 or Twitter underscore Dia 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 underscore. Or you can buy my music all over iTunes. You can stream it on Spotify. It's all available everywhere now. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us now. We'll be back again next Saturday at noon right here on 105.9 The Region. You can find us on social media at What She Said Talk. Singing us out now, here is Dia, accompanied by her brother Rob on guitar, performing Desire. Dressed in a sheep's disguise I wear the wool made of sweet summer skies Leaving my shepherd I'll tear myself apart Lying in pastures I'll let you eat my heart na 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 na
hole I see it in poison It's tearing me apart Dying in pastures A body with no heart Na 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 with Christine Bentley and Kate Wheeler at whatshesaidtalk.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.